gives to Nick, open three, takes it, makes it, Nick Emery! Rolls it past the defender, gets into the 18, shoots, and near post score! Emery Walker! This is Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel, brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. And now, here's Greg Rubel. Welcome into Studio 2 in the BYU Broadcasting Building for another edition of Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel. Great to have you joining us on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143, BYUradio.org, and the BYU Radio app. Also on demand on our Behind the Mic show page at BYUradio.org and the app or on our Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Every week on this show, we bring you two long-form interviews with Cougars past and present. I really enjoy the format and getting to know these folks, and I hope you like hearing from them as much as I do. With BYU football training camp rolling on, tonight's show is tight end-themed. As I visit with the Cougars' current tight end coach, Steve Clark, and BYU's best ever tight end, the record setter, the Super Bowl champion, Dennis Pitta. Let's get right into it with a coach starting his third season as a full-time coach on the BYU staff. Steve Clark is a BYU alum and a well-traveled coach, as we're about to find out. And most of his coaching has been done here in the Beehive State, including offensive coordinator stints at Southern Utah and Weber State. Coach Steve Clark, welcome in Behind the Mic. Good to be here. Thank you. You list your hometown as Provo, Utah. Are you a true Utah County kid? Yes. I, I lived all over. I was born in Utah. I was born in Provo. Um, but my dad moved, so we lived in we lived in Montana and Colorado, and California. And then I came back here for high school, but I uh, for junior high, I guess, is uh, I was on all those other places until then. Where'd you go to, to high school? I went to Pro High to BYU, and then uh, got into the coaching profession, and then I started moving around and. Going other places. I want to get to your BYU days as a student in a minute here, but when did uh, when did sports and football start to occupy a, a larger role in your life? Uh, about thirty seconds after I was born. <laughs> I, I don't ever remember it not being everything to me. Uh, my my earliest memories I remember watching uh, Joe Namath pull off the miracle win against the Colts. I mean, I must have been. Well, I'm not going to say how old it was, but. I, I probably just barely had started walking, but I do remember watching, watching, being fascinated with it. So it's all I've ever remembered. We're probably we're probably close to the same age because you're, you're 36. Yeah, I, I'm about to turn 51. You were a BYU student, and you were a comms major at the same time. I would have been a comms major uh-huh. at BYU because I I marched in April of 91, graduated December of 90. You graduated 92 mm-hmm. in com in communication. So I imagine we probably cross paths as students at around the same time. If you were spending time in the HVAC, so was mm-hmm. I. So as you were a comms major, what was your career objective at that point? You know, I I wanted to go into to broadcast. I wanted to go into sports broadcasting. Um, I wanted to, you know, do something uh, with ESPN. I always wanted to coach. That was my number one goal. And, and But you have to, you have to get a degree. And there's not there's not many coaching degrees that you can get. So I, I went into something that was maybe a fallback where I could still be involved with sports. And so I was kind of in, in the broadcasting. I wanted to, you know, be on the radio. Um, I love the radio. I lo- I grew up listening to, to Vin Scully. I mean, I could barely get it tuned in on my radio. Um, I'm a Dodger fan. I love Vin Scully. I could get it just barely list- in my room. And I'd listen to him, and I and I loved that, and I thought that'd be you know, that just interested me. So that's why I went into that. Within two years uh, of graduating from BYU, because I think you went to grad school at Utah in the interim, you were now coaching football as an assistant at your alma mater, Provo High School. And mm-hmm. I think you were there six or seven years. Mm-hmm. I loved coaching high school. I mean, Frank Henderson was my head football coach, and I coached with him, and I learned so much from him. Um, in those times working at, at, at Pro High. So my dream had always been to to coach it in the collegiate level. And I'd come over here and I'd work the camps. I'd work with Norm Chow, work with Robbie Bosco. I kind of would pick their brains. But ultimately, they, you know, I was told, if you want to coach in college, you got to get into the college coaching. So so around turn of the century, that's what happens. You, you, end, you, you finish your tenure at Provo. You go to Utah, some defensive work, maybe as a grad assistant to start, and then, and then you moved into ops, right? So I knew the Whittinghams growing up. Um, we lived in the same neighborhood. I just said, look, I'm, I'm trying to get into college. 
coaching. Um, can I come up and, and be a volunteer? And Kyle said, yeah, come on up. And and that's kind of how I started into um, – So they call it a volunteer assistant then, It was I a guess. volunteer oh, yeah. assistant. On the uh, defensive side? On the defensive side. Okay. I worked with Kyle. I worked with the, the linebackers. And it was a great room. Um, they, you know, it was Kyle and Gary Anderson, Steve Kafusi, uh, Bill Bush – it was, and they're very, very good coaches, and I learned a ton from them. But it didn't pay anything. Now you're truly Nothing. a volunteer at that I'm point. I'm truly volunteering. Yeah. So now it becomes to become a bit of a grind, family-wise. You're, it's, yeah. It's very difficult, and you know, um, my wife works, and uh, my father had my father-in-law had passed away, and so our what a, a blessing was was my mother-in-law lived with us, and she was working, and my wife worked, and. Kind of they supported me in this this endeavor, but in your dream, basically, in my dream, yeah. yeah. And then the ops job came open, and so now it's a not it's not it's a non on field coaching position, basically. Yeah, and yeah. I took it because I needed I needed income. I mean, I, yeah. I couldn't I couldn't just keep volunteering, so that's not what I wanted to do. But it was a good experience, and, and Coach McBride came to me and he and he, he offered it to me. He said, "I'm not going to interview anybody else if it, if you wanted it's yours," and I really felt like he'd done quite a bit for me so I I said yeah I'll take it. There was a guy on the staff at Utah at that time who ended up taking a job that got you your next job and that would have been Vincent White. Vincent White, White. he was he take, back coach. Yeah, yeah, he takes the job as the now head coach at St. Mary's and people who know St. Mary's only as a basketball school they did play football, and this was actually, as it turned out, the last year they would play yeah. football was the year you got involved with them. So now you're back in coaching. Um, you're, you're in an FCS school, one that doesn't even have football anymore, but now you're in Moraga, and you're coaching QBs and coordinating the passing game for Vincent White's team, and Vincent White was at Utah with you, and now you're out there at St. Mary's. The coaching world is so much who you know, and, and by me staying on and being the, the ops guy, at Utah, I got to know Vincent, and and that's how I got that job. And I thought, you know, it's been, you know, fifteen years. We worked. We finally, we finally made it. Yeah. Uh, we go one in ten, and uh, they they shut down the program the next year, and we're back to back to zero, back to ground zero again. So, uh, but that was a great uh, opportunity for me and my family to go out to the Bay Area and, and work at St. Mary's. And great it was school. and it was the last year of that program uh-huh. as they announced the next spring, 2004, that they'd be, they'd be shutting it down. It's funny because when I still go there, and I go there annually, obviously, for basketball trips, they still have in their basketball facility kind of a football section mm-hmm. of, the, uh, of the building there where it kind of reminds people of what they did as an FCS program. And there was a time when it was, yeah. it was, a, it was a thriving enterprise. They, they played in, I can't remember if it was the Rose Bowl or I think it was the Rose Bowl they played back in the, back in the day. So it was, yeah, yeah it, was a, it was a good program. We're visiting with uh, BYU tight ends coach Steve Clark. When we come back after this break, uh, Coach Clark returns to the state of Utah as his coaching journey continues. He's been coaching here in the state for the last 15 seasons. This is Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel, brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. Dennis Pitta, it's tight end night. Coming up at the bottom of the hour, we've got more with Coach Steve Clark coming up next. Stay with us. Listening to Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel, brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. Visiting tonight with BYU tight ends coach Steve Clark as the Cougars are in the midst of training camp getting ready for their season opener against Arizona on September 1st right here on BYU Radio. Before the break with Coach Clark, he talked about going back to square one. And this was after uh, the program you were working with in Moraga, California, St. Mary's, closed up shop. The football program was discontinued after your one season, and you come back to Utah. What's next for you at that point? I got a call from Kyle when St. Mary's folded, saying, come back. He said, I, I, you know, I want you back, but Urban would support you coming back here, too. So I'm back for a year. This time was the D-line. You know, I fit in really well with those with the, with the D-line. I... Uh, you know, we were about the same height and ate, ate the most, ate the same. And yeah. I got to work with some really f- great guys um, on that. And I worked with Gary Anderson on it. And we went undefeated and played in the uh, Fiesta Bowl. And, and it was, 
it was amazing to see what Armand Miner did and how he ran that program. It was it was unbelievable experience, an un, uh, unbelievable learning experience. And, of course, that was on his way out. Uh-huh. Kyle was the de facto coach at come bowl time, and yet that, that was where the road ended for you with them mm-hmm. at that point because now Bronco Mendenhall is now the new head coach at BYU right as Kyle's the new head coach at mm-hmm. Utah. And how did the move to Provo then come about working for Bronco coming back to BYU? Uh, Steve Kafusi said, we got a spot open for you if you want to come here. And I went and interviewed with Bronco. And, and the spot was? Graduate assistant. Graduate assistant. So I, I, I didn't know Bronco. Um, we had moved back to Provo because I had I promised my kids we'd move back to Provo. They have um, dozens and dozens of, of cousins here. And so... You know, we had, I'd moved them so much that I said, when we move back, we'll move back to Provo because that's where they, they wanted to be. And it would have just been easier for me to, to – I could have been a graduate assistant at Utah, graduate assistant at BYU, and I felt like, you know, get and get, I get to know some, some new people. Mm-hmm. And so I uh, interviewed with Bronco, and um, he offered me the job, and I, I took it. Bronco's taking you somewhat on Steve's recommendation, I mm-hmm. guess. Of course, he has to interview you. He has to like you. Did you feel like there was a lot riding on your conversation with Bronco at the time? Yeah, I thought everything was was riding on on that conversation, um, and and you know he called me. I actually called him and I said, "Look, I, I need to make a decision. I, I mean, there's you know some pressure both ways." Uh, he said, "Well, the job's yours if you want it." So I so I took it, and uh, you know I didn't know Robert and I. I didn't know Brandon. I didn't know anybody else. I didn't know Lance Reynolds. Those were the guys that were in the room. Mm-hmm. Patrick Higgins. Uh, the first thing they said to me is, "You're going to work with Jeff Grimes." You know, work with him as um, assistant O-line coach, and I thought, look, I just—I was just a quarterback coach. You know, I'm, that's my—I was—I was—I was crushed. The best thing I ever did. That was the best thing I ever did. If you want to know football, if you want to understand f- where football happens, it's, the, it's in the, the offense and defensive lines. That's—that's the—that's the nuts and bolts of it. And that—that that was the best experience I've—I've I've had in football. Was working with Jeff for those two years. And now you're, of course, back with him again, which will bring us back full circle in a way, too. You had three seasons in that post at BYU. Mm-hmm. Then a coach you work with closely, again, now, also with you, has become very instrumental in your career, and that's Ed Lamp. Uh-huh. He's the one that took you down south, and that's where you became a college OC for the first time, was with Ed right. Lamp at Southern Utah. I wasn't his first choice. <laughs> He had a he had a friend again. It goes back to who you know. I mean, mm-hmm. he had a friend. He didn't know me. Barry Lamb, who is no relation to Ed Lamb, mm-hmm. knew Ed very well and highly recommended me. I mean, he he went out of his way, and I I owe a lot to Barry Lamb. Um, and so he called Ed called me and he said, you know, it was you and a guy that I've I've worked with, and and he's accepted the job. And I said that's that's fine. So. Um, I didn't think anything of it, and then, you know, uh, about a week later, he called me back and said, you know, um, the guy that was going to take it is going somewhere else. I'd like to offer you the job. So, so uh, I took it, um, and uh, I tell my wife and my kids, it's time to, time to, I, we, you know, we've moved probably six. We've actually not probably it's sixteen times that we've moved, and that was one of them. And you know, they're they're great about it. Um, so we went down, and I got to know Ed, and, and uh, Ed gave me free reign to do whatever I wanted, which I realize now how much I didn't know at the time. But we went to a, a program that hadn't won in two years or had won one game in two years, and that was our challenge just to turn that place around. And, uh, you know, we did. We did. We uh, got some good players. Um, Fessy's Taki. Uh, he helped. And, uh, and Fessy follows you, ends up going with you when you leave from one FCS school in the state of Utah to another as you go from SUU to Weber State. Uh-huh. And that and that came about with another friend that I'd worked out at Utah was you know Jay Hill. He called me and um, you know made it pretty much gave me an offer that I couldn't I couldn't turn down. And so he offered Fessy a job too, and then Fessy decided to come. And he was in your room, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. so Fessy played for me, and then he was our uh, GA. He was my GA, and then he I hired him at Southern Utah as our receivers coach, and then he came with me to uh, to Weber State. And he did a, I mean, he did an unbelievable job for them last year. Well, yeah, because he took your job once you uh-huh. left, because you were OC up there, and he was your wide receivers coach, correct? Uh-huh. And then once you left, come back to BYU, he's now the new OC he's and did great OC. things uh, as well up yeah, there. Yeah, he did a great job. Um, 
and and uh, you know I got to I got to watch you know we stayed in contact and I got to see how well they did and it really wasn't a surprise. Um, Jay's a great coach and Fessy's a great coach and Brent Myers. I mean they got a, they had a very good staff built up there. So then you come to BYU first now full time tight ends coach in 2016. A year later, two years later, now Fessy is now joining. Former coordinator in the room, former coordinator in the room, A-Rod, former coordinator in the room. Jeff Grimes is now the coordinator in the room. That's a unique kind of combination of skills and abilities there. All people who know how to run an offense being brought in to, to create BYU's new offense. Yeah, and Jeff has been been more than welcoming on on suggestions and how, how things have done, what how we've been successful in the places that we've been. I haven't been in a room that's been as easy to work in as because as a, as a coordinator I'm trying to be this the the position coach that I want would want if I were the coordinator mm-hmm. and I think mean, we're all kind of approaching it that way uh, we know when to throw something out when to be quiet when to listen and and we all have things that that we learn from I mean is that what makes what? it such a good room right now is the fact that so many of you have been in the position that Jeff's in that you know what he would want yeah, from you? And, I mean, we, and we know the frustrations with we know the frustrations of 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 assistant an assistant saying um I think we should do this and and being shot down and saying no well I'm the coordinator we're going a different direction and then having that assistant sulk about it and then they're not they're not fully on board, and that, mm-hmm. you cannot have. That's the worst thing that can happen. Um, and I know that you know you talk about the four corners, but Ryan Pugh is is as sharp as they come. He's he's got, and, and so is AJ. I mean, he, they've been around. Everybody works really well in that room. The coordinators can help the most is in the the planning and the getting getting things ready. This is how we use the the call sheet. This is how we use the uh, wristband, the quarterback wristband. There's there's a million little things that he can say, okay, you handle that because you've done that before. It's apparent you're the only one who can relate to what went on last year in that offensive room right now. You're the only guy that went through the four and nine. What does it mean about what Coach Grimes sees in you, et cetera? How do you view the fact that you are the holdover? Well, I think again it goes back to I knew Jeff, and when Jeff was was thinking about taking the position, he we had fifty conversations about it. We were talking about it daily, two three times, and Jeff was very thorough in his questioning from, I mean, top to bottom. He wanted to know about the program, about the university. I mean, even though he'd been here, he he wanted to know. The first thing he says, I want everyone especially the players to know they have a clean slate here. So we don't we don't discuss last year. It's gone, it's washed away. Everybody has a clean slate to prove themselves and I think I was included in that. Now that said your position group does return maybe the best offensive player BYU had last year from a production standpoint in Matt Bushman. So the slate's not necessarily totally clean relative to him because he's done a lot of good things and he's earned some some capital I think with you. So how excited are you about the position group, including Matt and beyond, in 2018? Very excited. You know, Matt proved that what he could do. Um, you have Moroni, who is an outstanding athlete, but hasn't played in a while, hasn't really even played the position. So I have a lot of uh, uh, hope for Moroni, but at the same time, I don't, you know, we have to still see him kind of more in the, in the uh, physical part of the game. J.J. does a great job. Um, he's so valuable to us. No way, way. No way, way. And, yeah. and, and you, you probably won't, he, you know, he doesn't catch a lot of passes, but he he does a lot for us in the run game. He does a lot for us in protections. Um, he, he has to run routes because, you know, we, we can't give it away every time he's in. We're running the ball, so we have to mix it up some. Um, Dallin Holker is exciting to to freshman, freshman coming in coming in, but he's and and Hank uh, Tuipulo who just got off a mission, but you know freshman it's kind of crapshoot with them. You, you some can jump in right away and and handle this position. Some it takes maybe a year, but I think there's some good leadership and I think there's uh, a confidence in the room right now. Last thing, personal note. You mentioned your wife earlier, and and we should probably give your wife and kids uh, some credit at this point with a bit of a roll call. So my wife, Suzanne, she's actually going to school here. 
she's getting a degree in uh, family sciences or something. She's got she's she's a genius now, so she can solve all our family problems. So I love her very much. I'm very lucky. Alex is at uh he's at BYU Law School, second year law school. Uh, he's pretty smart. He's a lot smarter than I am. Emily's a uh, teacher at American Fort Junior High School. Jameson, uh, he's a freshman at BYU. He's gonna he's a student assistant. And then I have a daughter who just graduated from Timview Maggie, so she sleeps a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Teenagers do that. Teenage guy. Yeah. All right, that's the group. There was a time you mentioned the name Steve Clark, and and rock and roll aficionados would go, "Oh, Def Leppard, lead guitarist." Dear he's departed. dead now. Yes, he's departed. Uh, but uh, you share your name with uh, with uh, yes, a former lead guitarist for Def Leppard, Steve Clark. Uh, and and in your personal interests, do move into the rock and roll realm, do they not? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we've had these these. I mean, the, the greatest band. We have had these off-air conversations about Rush. About Rush, yeah. yeah. And and uh, when you have Rush, how many shows have you been to, by the way? Probably a dozen. Yeah, so you know we we share that. And there are, and there are those who've been to hundreds. So yeah. that's that's nothing when I say a dozen. Like yeah, real aficionados go what amateur, you know? Yeah, I love I love music. I love. Um, I got into music. I got in when I got into Rush. I really didn't need to listen to much else. Much else. Yeah. I got so I like prog- progressive rock music, the Rush, the the Genesis, the Pink Floyds. Yeah. I, I I mean I'm big. I'm know a lot of people are gonna cringe, but I love Tool. In fact, Kalani bought me t- tickets to Tool last time they came. So it's hard edge stuff, but it's it, it's progressive <laughs> in its own it's way. It's not yeah. it's not for everybody, yeah. but yeah. they're a, a you know a good prog metal yeah. band, just like just like Rush is. So well, whatever you uh, do to unwind in the coaching world, whatever works, you roll with it. Yeah, you get on the airplane, you listen to some music. It's it's a uh, it's a great stress relief so well i'm glad you uh made time in this busy month to to come into studio and to chat with me i appreciate it and we will uh, see a lot more of you during camp and of course during the season thanks steve thank you thanks for having me Chris. all right when we come back it's tonight's uh, catching up with the cougars segment brought to you by byu alumni tonight i visit with record-setting byu tight end the great dennis pitta it's tight end night that's coming up next this is behind the mic with greg grubel presented by the byu store the official outfitter of byu fans everywhere back with more right after this You're listening to Behind the Mic with Greg Rubel, brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. It is time now for this evening's Catching Up with the Cougars segment on Behind the Mic. We're brought to you by BYU alumni. BYU alumni chapters help students in need and spread the influence of the Y around the world. Stay connected for good and find your chapter at alumni.byu.edu slash chapters. And tonight, it's a conversation with a player who uh, went from BYU walk-on to the most prolific tight end career in Cougar football history and onto the NFL where he racked up impressive stats there and caught a touchdown pass in a Super Bowl win, all while battling career-threatening injuries on multiple occasions. He's, of course, Dennis Pitta, and he joins me now behind the mic. Dennis, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So, Dennis, athletic family, is that a fair way to describe the Pittas? Yeah, that's, a, that's an okay assessment, I think. Uh, I know my dad considers himself an athlete, even though probably the rest of us in our family don't. But he was a good baseball player, played baseball at a junior college and, uh, and football, obviously, and, and went on to play football at Cal. And he then later on went to camp with the Cincinnati Bengals, and I always give him a hard time because he got cut. So he couldn't quite make it out of camp. But, um, no, he was a great athlete. and uh, We're not sure about my mom. That's, uh, that's still up in the air. So, Are you a Dennis Jr.? I'm a junior, yeah. I'm actually a second. For some reason, my parents didn't like the junior tag, so I'm the second. My dad is is the first, I guess. But there won't be a third. Stops with me. Between the father, Dennis, and the son, Dennis, was one of you. Danny, was was you just straight Dennis the whole way for both of you? No, I was always called Denny. My family still calls me Denny. Uh, A lot of my friends growing up called me that. Describe your California upbringing. I grew up in Moorpark, California. Just a small town north of Los Angeles, probably 40 minutes out of the city, uh, 25 minutes on the beach or so. We grew up going to the beach just about every other day during the summer. And, uh, you know, like we mentioned before, we were a sports family. Uh, loved sports growing up. Obviously, my dad was, was a big sports fan. We always watched football, basketball, golf, baseball growing up, and uh, always outside playing sports. And so 
sports has always been my first love. I, I grew up running track. I grew up playing basketball, uh, football, obviously, and uh, played all three of those sports in high school. And that's just kind of what, what our focus always was. And so fortunately, it's, it's worked out for me a little bit. So as a multi-sport guy in high school and then becoming really proficient at football, and then as the recruiting process began, is it fair to say that there was more interest than, than offers at a certain point? Well, there was definitely some interest. I, I think I sat down with a few recruiters from some D1 schools. BYU, obviously, I sat down with Barry Lamb, who was the recruiter in our area at the time. And I remember sitting down with the University of Utah. I think it was Dan Mullins at the time, who was an assistant under Urban Meyer. Apart from that, there was some interest with some of the local schools like UCLA and USC, but none of them wanted to offer me a scholarship. So there was opportunities to walk on at a few different places. And so that was really the amount of interest I was getting. And I kind of had a decision to make if I was going to continue to pursue football, it was going to be as a preferred walk-on somewhere. And BYU was always a place that I had on my radar, obviously being a member of the church and LDS. Uh, I had a sister that was attending there. My mom went there. And so we obviously had a, uh, a history with BYU and a familiarity there. It was a place that I always kind of wanted to go. I had to get into the school on my own. I had to get in through my academics and, and everything else. And once I was admitted, uh, I decided to walk on, and I, I came in as a preferred walk-on. And these uh, these are the Gary Croton days. 2003 would have been your arrival on campus, and as I recall, you gray-shirted that, that year, so you're not playing yet. And people who think of you now, and justifiably so, as 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 a tight end great at BYU. At that time, you weren't being thought of as necessarily a marquee tight end. You kind of grew into the position. Is that fair to say at the time? Yeah, well, I always played wide receiver in high school, and I was skinny. I was I was 6'5 by my senior year, but I was only about 180 pounds. And you can imagine in, in college and in the NFL, I was played at about 245, 250. So you subtract 60 or 70 pounds from that frame. And that's really what it looked like <laughs> in high school. I was really skinny and uh, struggled to put on weight. And, and I think that was part of the, the issue in my recruiting process. Um, I think a lot of recruiters didn't foresee me being able to make a switch to tight end and didn't necessarily think I would be capable of playing wide receiver at that level. Fortunately, I, I was able to put on some weight when I got to BYU and, and they were able to, to foresee uh, that move. But, you know, I remember getting to BYU and being a preferred walk-on is a little bit easier than being just a tryout walk-on guy. Obviously, they they kind of know your name. They kind of know who you are. And I say kind of because they don't totally know who you are. I remember my first practice at BYU, Coach Croton, um, I had made a few plays and, and obviously impressed uh, him in some regard. And he called me over and started to talk to me and called me Dustin. Didn't even know my name was Dennis. So uh, I didn't I didn't have the heart to correct him. I just uh, said thanks and, and went on my way and continued to practice. But that's kind of the life of a walk-on. Uh, even a preferred walk-on, you're oftentimes an afterthought. They don't necessarily know you. Not all of the coaches have even seen you play or, or heard your name before. And so uh, it was difficult. And, and actually my first experience, with the football team was sitting in a walk-on meeting and it was uh, me and really a bunch of tryout walk-on guys and coach Empey was running the meeting who was the tight end coach at the time and he basically said if you're sitting in this room and you're not an offensive lineman there's almost no way we're going to keep you on this team and we're hurting for offensive linemen we're going to need some offensive linemen so if you are an offensive lineman you have a pretty good shot of of at least making the team. Uh, if you're a skill position player, we just probably don't have room for you. And I'm sitting in that meeting thinking, man, this is looking pretty bleak for my football career here. And I even remember going home after the fact and calling my dad and saying, you know, I don't think this is going to work out. I, <laughs> I just sat in this meeting and this is what they told us and it's not looking good. And so I, I then got on the phone later with, with Barry Lamb and explained that meeting to him. And he said, listen, you know, we know who you are. That doesn't necessarily apply to you like all of the other walk-on guys that are trying out, but we want to make sure that we get you out to practice and can see what you do. So anyways, long story short, there was some stumbling blocks. Just trying to make my mark early on on the football program, program was difficult. But once I did, fortunately, it went well. You got playing time in Gary Croton's last year. 2004. I remember late in that year, we went to Colorado Springs, played really, really well, beat Air Force, and you had a big day 
I was calling your name every other play, it seemed like. And all of a sudden, who's this guy? And you were that guy. I guess you could say it was a little bit of my coming out party. Uh, I remember I had a punt block in that game. Two touchdowns. One was the tight end throwback screen that was wide open. I was able to kind of trot into the end zone. It was one of those games where finally I was called upon to do something. I was given an opportunity, and fortunately I was able to make the most of it. But I I entered that year as still a walk-on. Dan Coates was the incumbent at the position. He was just coming off a freshman All-American season. There was a handful of other tight ends in the mix. Uh, Johnny Harleen was on that in that group, and I was buried on the depth chart. Dan Coates was, was the headliner, but I just slowly, through each practice, through each day, was able to kind of make my mark and, and work my way up through the depth chart. And Fortunately, I had a tremendous coach in, in Coach Empey who believed in me, gave me opportunities. They knew my name at that point, and uh, so I entered the season really as the number two tight end behind Dan and uh, I still remember I was skinny I was still little played the position at about 210 uh, I, I kind of scrapped my way through the first few games had I think just a few catches in the first few games and then we go into to Air Force and was able to really make my mark and and I remember prior to that game Dan Coates had broken his hand and so that's really what gave me the opportunity to step in and have a larger role and fortunately it worked out. You did make your mark, and we get a glimpse of you, and then we don't see you for a couple of years because you were off to, to, ser- to serve an LDS mission. And in that time, it's a new head coach, it's a new coaching staff, and you come back in 2007 to a program that's now gone 11-2 and two the year before you get back. Different expectations, different setup. What was it like to leave in, in one setting and come back to an entirely different one? It was challenging because I left on my mission, and like you mentioned, Gary Croton and, and virtually that entire staff offensively was was let go and Bronco Mendenhall was on the staff as a defensive coordinator while I was there uh, but I had almost no contact with him and uh, he was made the head coach fortunately a a couple coaches on the defensive side that I had developed relationships with were still there so uh, I remember on my mission I was I was getting recruiting letters from Oregon from Oregon State from some other big program from Oklahoma State, and it was largely offensive coaches who had been on the BYU staff while I was a freshman that then went other places after they were let go. So you had Gary Croton, I think, who was the offensive coordinator for Oregon at the time. The wide receivers coach, Coach Bradford, was now at Oklahoma State, and uh, they were actively trying to recruit me and offer me a scholarship while I was on my mission to come there versus go back to BYU. And so one thing I I forgot to mention that before I left on my mission, Coach Croton had promised me a scholarship uh, when I had returned. And so that was one thing that was always a question mark on my mission and when I came back home, that we had for BYU was, well, under this new regime with Bronco Mendenhall, were they still going to honor that scholarship promise? Fortunately, they did, because had they not, we were contemplating taking scholarship offers at Oregon or Oklahoma State, because those were actual offers at that point. And so uh, Coach Lamb was still on the coaching staff. I remember getting home from my mission and calling him and asking him, are we still in good standing? Am I going to be able to come back and be on scholarship? Because if not, I may have to pursue different avenues. And, and I always wanted to go to BYU. It wasn't that uh, I wanted to go somewhere else, but I wanted to make sure that they were going to be able to provide me with a scholarship because I was going to get that elsewhere. And so fortunately, they did, and they honored it, and I, I came back to the team. But I came back, and there was two really good tight ends on the team at the time. It was Vic Soto who was a big-time recruit, well-thought-of guy coming into the program, and uh, Andrew George. And both of them were coming off freshman years where they had good years. They didn't have a lot of playing time because of of Harley and Coates, who were the two guys at the time, but they were really looked at as the the two that were going to take over the position. And so I came in as really number three on the depth chart had no familiarity with the new coaching staff offensively, didn't know Coach and I, didn't know any of the other offensive coaches. So I was coming into a situation where I had to reprove myself all over again. Fortunately, I was on scholarship, but now I was having to work my way up the death chart just like I did my uh, my freshman year as a walk-on. And so I came back my sophomore year and, and was able to start. So long story short, it was uh, it was never an easy road uh, before or after my mission. But um, like I mentioned before, I think it worked out all right. The 2007, 2008, 2009 seasons become, quite simply, Dennis, three of the most successful back-to-back-to-back football seasons BYU's had in its history. 39 games, 32 wins. That's 32-7 and over those three years. You're playing with Max Hall, with Harvey Unga, 
with Austin Colley for two of those three years. So really in those three seasons, we see all-time greats at their respective positions all playing together. And it came about, and, and no one planned it that way, clearly, that you'd all be together and be this core for those three seasons. But uh, how do you look back on that three-season span and those guys in particular and realize just how special a deal you guys had? Well, I think we were all very fortunate that it timed out the way it did, that we were all at BYU at the same time. And um, I remember playing with Austin my freshman year in 2004, and we left on our missions at the same time. That's right. And I, I knew Austin a little bit, but I, I wasn't really good friends with Austin at the time. Uh, I remember seeing him in the MTC after we both left on our missions, and we sat down and had lunch one day, and, and we were still kind of getting to know each other. We left on our missions, we came back home, and, and he was really one of the only people I knew on the team at the time. We started working out together in the return missionary program. We would work out early in the morning for all the return missionaries that were coming back. We were on a different program than, than the rest of the team to try and get us back in shape and our legs under us and integrated back into things and so him and I started to to work out together to hang out together and that's where we really became very good friends and fortunately we were able to be at BYU at the same time because he's in my opinion the best receiver that's ever come through there and for me to be able to play alongside him as a skill position player it, it was tremendous and and an honor for me and then you couple that with Max Hall Max transferring from ASU and, and being there at the same time as us Um, We couldn't have asked for a better quarterback, a better leader. Uh, I don't know if I've ever been around many better leaders than Max Hall, and I've been with some really good leaders at at all different levels. Uh, I've been with guys like Ray Lewis, uh, Ed Reed, Hall of Fame guys who are outstanding leaders in their own right, but Max was right up there with every one of them, if not better. He was the most competitive person I've ever played with. He wanted to win more than anyone I've ever played with, and that is infectious. That kind of leadership, that kind of drive, that kind of determination, it has a trickle effect on everybody else. You don't want to let a guy like that down. You don't want to take a playoff because you know he's not going to. And so to have a leader like that at the quarterback position that was coming into his sophomore season the same time that Austin and I were, we were just fortunate that it timed out that way. And so to be able to play with an all-time great quarterback, uh, an all-time great receiver, and then the emergence of Harvey Unga that year, he just became a guy that just could catch the ball to the backfield, could run the football, was big, was shifty, and just did so many things for that offense. And his versatility was limitless that we really created something offensively that was really special. We were fortunate that we, we all were able to play together at the same time and go through that run during those three seasons. And they finished things out the right way in that 2009 season, going on a nice little run to end the year, beating Oregon State in the bowl game. And then it was off to the NFL for Dennis Pitta. He was an All-American as a senior in 2009, set numerous records at BYU for the tight end position and overall. Then was a fourth-round pick by the Baltimore Ravens. It's break time when we come back. The pro football career of Dennis Pitta. This is Behind the Mic with Greg Grubel, presented by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. We're back with more from Dennis Pitta right after this. Welcome back to Behind the Mic, brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. Here's your host, Craig Rubel. And this is Behind the Mic on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143, BYU and the BYU Radio app. It's our Catching Up with the Cougars portion of the program brought to you by BYU alumni. And on this tight end themed evening, our conversation with Dennis Pitta continues now. And as our story continues, Dennis's BYU career is concluded and he's been drafted by the Baltimore Ravens in 2010. And, and Dennis, uh, 2010 was kind of an ease-in season for you, uh, learning the ropes and the pros before you could really take off in 2011 and, and 2012. Like you mentioned before, I was a fourth-round pick, and um, I think a lot of people forget the Ravens that year drafted a tight end the round before me in the third round. They drafted Ed Dixon out of Oregon. And so Ed and I came into camp with the Ravens as, as two draft picks uh, back-to-back at the tight end position, which doesn't happen very often and certainly something that is difficult if you're the second of the two tight ends that's taken and we got to the Ravens and longtime tight end Todd Heap who had played for the team was going into his 10th year um, pro bowl player all pro tremendous tight end was uh, was the starter and so Ed and I came into a situation where we were certainly going to be backups and uh, had to 
try and carve our way into a role in the offense and, and figure out uh, what what our careers were going to be. And so um, I was fortunate that when I arrived at the Ravens, we had someone like Todd Heap. And Todd and I instantly were able to to become friends, to stay close. He's one of my closest friends today and uh, doesn't live too far from us here in Arizona now and someone that I always talk to and, and, and hang out with. And so uh, I was fortunate to come into that situation. But um, from a football perspective, it was interesting because when you're drafted behind another tight end, the opportunities are much less than the tight end ahead of you get. <laughs> and so Ed was really thought of as um, a better prospect, more athletic, um, a bigger threat, a better pass catcher, a better blocker. It, it was a really interesting dynamic for me early on. And so you mentioned um, I got off to a slow start in 2010. That was my rookie year. I had um, one catch for one yard. Not quite the production I was used to <laughs> at BYU. Um, but it was largely because Todd was there as as the starter, and Ed was the one that was given the opportunities. And um, I was really the third tight end, just operating as a special teams player. And so um, it, it took some time for me to get enough opportunities to really show what I was capable of. And it, it largely took almost a season and a half to where I could show that um, I was capable of, of a lot at that level and that I could be a dynamic receiver at the tight end position uh, for that team. And so it, it wasn't easy uh, my first year, and there was a lot of frustration on my end trying to work uh, through that situation, uh, being the third tight end and just struggling to get any amount of playing time was is never fun. But, you know, it's just one of those things that I think I was groomed for because it was never easy for me early on at BYU, and I just had to continue to put my head down and work, and when an opportunity presented itself, I had to make the most of it. After your third season, you guys play in and win the Super Bowl, in which you have a touchdown catch. And some would say, well, that's, that's, that's the pinnacle NFL moment, is catching a touchdown in the Super Bowl. Is that A, accurate? And if not, what was either your welcome to the NFL moment or the moment that you look back as either my arrival, I know I belong, or, or the highest point? I would say that's, that's probably looking back the highest point of my career, being able to play in that game, catch a touchdown in that game. That's something that I'll always be able to look back and, and, uh, and feel really good about being able to accomplish that. And, um, I, I don't think that that's the moment where I said, um, I've arrived here in the NFL or, or, or this is where I belong. I think it was the year prior we played in the, uh, AFC championship game against the New England Patriots. And uh, we lost that game ultimately. Uh, it was my second season, but it was a game where I made a, a lot of plays and our offensive coordinator who never gave me a ton of praise early on because I was really the third tight end in the situation. Um, finally kind of let me know that I belong and uh, and that was kind of my aha moment in the NFL. Like, I can play at this level, and I can play really well at this level. And uh, then fast forward to 2012, where we won the Super Bowl my third year. Um, that was really the season where I feel like I emerged as the number one tight end coming out uh, for the Ravens and uh, caught 60-something passes, had a great year, and had a really good postseason where I think I scored three touchdowns in four games and um, did some really good things to, to help us get to that point. But, um, yeah, certainly that's that's catching a touchdown in that Super Bowl and being able to win the Super Bowl is something that I'll look back at as the high point in my career. The Super Bowl after the 2012 season kind of caps maybe phase one of your NFL career, and phase two is so intrinsically linked to your, your hip injuries, and now you had to battle through those and come back again and again. In 2013, it's a training camp injury, but you got back for the end of the 2013 season. Then early in the 2014 season, it's an injury that takes you out 
the rest of that year and all of 2015, but somehow you make it back for the 2016 season. And in a lot of ways, statistically, it might have been the most impressive of your career after multiple hip injuries before OTAs in 2017. It's one more that ultimately, I guess, said to you, it's it's time to, to, to call it quits. And again, that's that's a really brief summation of something that takes up many years of your life. How do you look back on that phase two, if you will, and all you had to go through to get back to a position to play and, and play effectively again? Well, it was difficult because after that Super Bowl, I really feel like I was uh, hitting my stride in the NFL and, and really entering my prime where mentally it was I was locked in and knew exactly what what I needed to do and, and was really becoming the player that I wanted to become. Physically, I was at the top of my game. Um, and so we enter that offseason. I have a great offseason. Uh, we had just let uh, Anquan Bolden go, who was our number one receiver this Super Bowl year, and let him go because I was largely going to play more of that slot role and have a much larger role within the offense. And um, was planning on having a big year and then come into training camp and I dislocate my hip for the first time. And it was a freak injury. It was, it was, I was going up for a ball in the back of the end zone and <clears throat> the linebacker landed on my legs. They got pinned underneath me. A safety landed on my on my shoulders and just a ton of force dislocated my hip. I, I was able to come back later on in that year, p- played the last four games and, and did enough to be able to earn a, uh, a second contract. And I was very fortunate to be able to sign that second contract with the Ravens uh, coming off that injury. Um, because then just three games into that following year, I dislocated my hip again. And, and, and then like you mentioned, uh, again, after my 2016 season, it's just both uh, hip injuries after the first were just byproducts of the first. And um, what felt like a stable hip, what looked stable in all the imaging, just for whatever reason, did not continue to hold up. And uh, you, you do mention the 2016 season, which statistically, if you look, was, was my best season. Um, I don't feel like physically I was quite where I needed to be. By the end of that season, I felt like I was getting there and, and back to a place where where I was really going to be able to play at a high level. But I caught, I think, 87 balls and led all tight ends in the NFL and catches. And coming off my second hip surgery and being able to have the year that I did proved a lot to myself and was was a fun year to be able to play. But then to do it again the third time obviously required me to, to call it quits on my NFL career. But you talk about the second half of my career, and it was really riddled with injuries, and, and frustratingly so because um, I had high hopes for myself, and I think the team had high hopes for me and gave me a, a second contract that I, I feel like I never was able to fully live up to uh, because of those injuries. But, um, you know, that's life sometimes, and, and you deal with the challenges, you deal with the difficulties, and, and you move on. Was it more common sense or a medical diagnosis after the third one in 2017 that said, this is it for me? Well, it was a combination of both. I mean, <laughs> at that point, I think common sense said I need to step away. Uh, medically, I was being advised to step away at the same time, so it it made it easy to make that decision. But after the second hip surgery, there was there were some questions there as well, and I had to do some hard thinking about whether or not I wanted to come back and play or whether even I could pull it off. And um, fortunately, I, I was able to play and uh, and have a good year. But, uh, yeah, after that third one, it was, it was pretty clear uh, what the next move was. So did you ultimately achieve a peace of mind at the end of your NFL career? And what has kept you still involved with the NFL? And maybe you could update our listeners on uh, your professional uh, doings these days and, and how professional life and family life are going for you, where your home base is and how things are going. I'm certainly at peace with, uh, with everything. And um, it, it is difficult to end uh, a career not necessarily the way that you intended it to end. Anytime you go out because of injury, and I'm not the first to go out because of injury, and I won't be the last. But anytime your career ends on someone else's terms, it's difficult. You know, I, I still miss the game. I still wish I was out there playing like anybody would. I still feel like I could play, although I don't know that my, my body would hold up anymore. But, you know, I have mentally am in a good place and understand it's on to the next chapter for me. But one thing that's helped is, is what I'm able to do now. And, and I've done uh, radio broadcasts for the Ravens. And allows me to stay around the team, to be involved. You know, I travel with the team. I go on the team to the team hotels and I'm meeting meals with the team and hanging out with, with all my old teammates and call the game 
on Sundays. And uh, it's really been something that's been fun for me to be able to still be a part of it and feel like I'm still within that team feel because I think that's the hardest thing when you end your NFL career or end your career at any point is you're no longer part of a team. You've been a part of your high school team, college team. You've always been accountable to a team. And to not have that anymore is, I think, the most difficult part for for most people mentally. And so it's allowed me to stay a little bit a part of the team. Not something I ever thought I would do, but the opportunity presented itself last year after I got injured. And uh, I thought I'd step into that role and, and try it out and see if I liked it. And it was a lot of fun. So they asked me to come back this year, and uh, and I was obliged. So I'll be back uh, doing more Ravens games this year, and it'll be fun. And how's family life? Family life's great. We live in uh, Chandler, Arizona. We're not too far from Max Hall and his family. Obviously, we're related. We married sisters, so we have that family connection, and we see them all the time. Max is an offensive coordinator out at a a high school out here, and I go help him and help coach the receivers. So I see Max quite a bit. see Austin Collie all the time. We were just uh, out in California with them this past weekend, and – those have those two guys have certainly remained two of my my really close friends since my BYU days. But yeah, family life is good. We've got three kids. Uh, our oldest is five, a little boy named Decker, and we have twin girls who just turned three, identical twins, Skylar and Blakely. And so, we are busy at our house trying to uh, manage the chaos, my wife and I, and uh, and really enjoying uh, retirement life. Well, as Denny is reserved for only your closest of associates, I'll, I'll go straight Dennis on you. But, Dennis, thanks for coming on tonight and uh, chatting with us behind the mic. Great uh, being with you, and hopefully we can uh, talk again. Thanks, Greg. You can call me Denny anytime. You got it. Appreciate it. That is tonight's interview with Dennis Denny Pitta. And it was our Catching Up with the Cougars portion of the program brought to you by BYU Alumni. Want to help BYU students but don't know how? You can with the BYU Alumni chapters. Find the chapter that fits you at alumni.byu.edu slash chapters. Thanks again. We're back to wrap up tonight's edition of Behind the Mic right after this. Stay with us. You have been listening to Behind the Mic with the voice of the Cougars, Greg Rubel. Brought to you by the BYU Store, the official outfitter of BYU fans everywhere. Listen to the podcast at BYUradio.org.